Welcome to episode 199 of Soccer Works, where we take a look at how soccer works in the U.S. and around the world. Welcome to this Soccer Works Roundtable series live at the bar of the U.S. Soccer AGM. This is part two of our conversation with Chris Kessel and Mickey Turner. So, Chris, to, to keep going down this this trail of solutions, I know I talked with you uh, last year during the the Winalda uh, presidential campaign right. and, and the guys at West Virginia about different ways to grow the game at the grassroots level that kind of improve um, attendance, engagement. What, what are some things that you guys at West Virginia think would help in the area of attendance, engagement, growing that that U.S. national team experience? Just, I think that the first thing is, is like, Eric, when Alda proposed over the course of a four-year period, having either the men's, the women's, or the youth national teams play in all the states. And I really, really think that hosting these games in communities that have never had the national team visit would be amazing for attendance first. After all, it's the national team, team right? It's, There's it's 50 not, states. The national team. It's not the same six markets over and over and <laughs> over again. I mean, I, I want to say that we Chattanooga. We've got more than six cities. I believe that Chattanooga hosted a game, uh, a women's national team game, or maybe a men's. It was a couple years ago, and it was a friendly, and the attendance was above average. And I think that that shows. I mean, look, we all know that Chattanooga supports you know, their team amazingly, you know, and how many other communities out there would support the national team amazingly? I mean, why can't Albuquerque host a national team game? Agreed. It's a big city. Like people act like the United States isn't full of big cities. Sure. They're everywhere. Like we have over 300 million people. They all don't live in this, in four cities. Right. You know, you know, like, and I think that I, if although have you ever talked to a New Yorker? They yeah. Because there's well, only one city. If there, it's called the city for I, a reason, right? I'm not from New York, uh, as you can tell by my accent, right? But it is my favorite city on earth. So I do have an affinity for New Yorkers, but there is more than one city. There is in more America. than one city, right? And I think that if we move the national team games around the country and gave them, you know, exposure in a lot of these communities that don't have access. For, for a lot of these communities, they don't have access to even professional soccer. Sure. So bring in the national team, the men's or the women's national team. Or the team development have, academy, for that matter. Right. They don't even have the development. They don't have any. You know, they might have, you know, a lower division team or an MPSL team or a USL D2 team or, or, or whatever. Or ODP on a youth level, but they don't have the top. Top. Top programs people. or and leagues they, on the adult side. And they watch the games on TV just like everybody else. Right. You know, obviously not at the rate that they were two years ago, but they, you know, people want to see the national team. So let's take, if we're going to do it over the course of a few years, let's take the national team on tour. Like, let's go to Boise. Why not? I, I just think, I think that is such a common sense no-brainer. Which is why it'll never happen. Right? <laughs> I mean, but, it, like, it should. Yeah. Yeah, I think. It should happen because yeah, it is yeah. the national 
team, and it and it should be playing in yeah. in cities around the country, states around the country. Yeah. You know, to yeah. grow the game. I, I just think yeah. it. Well, why it, not? It's uh, what I've heard. You know, not this is no you know great uh, you know uh, revelation, um, but one of the reasons that they don't do that is because they don't get a whole lot of time with the the national teams. They don't get a whole lot of time with the players. So they've got, you know, four or five days to get them into training and they don't want to waste a day on either side of a game traveling from, uh, you know, Belgium to Portland or Boise because that, you know, involves a decent more amount of travel. It's not that much. Personally, I don't really buy that, but you're talking about instead of a, you know, a nine-hour uh, plane ride you're talking about a 12-hour plane okay, ride. Okay, so so if instead of playing in New Jersey across the river from New York, <laughs> right, we're, we're saying what if they played, you know, in, in, um, yeah, I, yeah, uh, you know, Vermont. Ma- yeah, or Madison, Wisconsin or something. Madison, yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah. I, I West guess, Virginia. Yeah. It's, you fly into D.C., you take a bus, and you're in West Virginia. I mean, like, yeah. it's not I mean, that think, far. Yeah, I think some of that is probably also has to do with just, you know, they want to be in big media markets uh, for sponsors and things like that, which isn't a particularly good reason, in my opinion. But I think so much of U.S. soccer is, is, is built on driving sponsorship revenue. Uh, for what purpose? To to build What's their the bank for? account. What's the money for? Uh, what, what are you doing with the money? That is an, a fantastic question. I think it's just one of those kind of capitalist mantras. He who has the most wins. What do you win? You don't win anything. You just ha- you just get to call yourself a big shot, essentially. Sure. But I think that's that's essentially what I, that is my opinion of what you know, the Federation is at this point. It seems to be a, just a revenue-generating machine, um, and that explains why they have a $150 million surplus, which is great, but they're not really doing anything with it at the moment. They won't even increase the U.S. Open Cup purse more by more than, a, you know, $50,000 right. you know, to try to grow that tournament, for example. Um, and, you know, I know that's something that they're going to be talking about tomorrow, not the, not the purse per se, but the U.S. Open Cup, generally speaking. Um, and so they are just so overly conscious about the financial well-being of the Federation to what end, what is the goal of any corporation is just to make more money, um, non-profit or for-profit. And so I think that's just kind of where they are at this point. I think it's born partially out of where they were. You know, we talked about this off off. Uh, off air, uh, where they were back in you know the early 2000s when they were having to pay people to get the games on TV and they just had no money. Right. And so I think I think that's just something they decided that they're not going to go back to those days and they just want to make sure that they have the war chest to deal with the ups and downs, uh, which you know is fiscally responsible. I don't know what it does necessarily about growing the game right so so staying on the subject of growing the game and the national teams and national team matches so we talked about lower ticker prices right we've talked about have the national team play 
in all 50 states, which both things to me, if, you know, if you're an economist, makes there there are there are market reasons to me that it makes sense. Um, you know, you've got the the um, the novelty and the and the newness, uh, the specialness. It's a unique moment. You know, I've got a national team game coming to my state. They've never played here before. People are going to show up. I, I just that's something I believe. You know, that access is is, is going to be important. Another thing to me that I see is that you know we're here at this AGM, and for everybody listening, it, you know if if, if you uh, haven't seen any uh, pictures or any video that's gone out um, uh, of us kind of doing this podcast, Soccer Works, you know, roundtable at the bar. Um, Mickey is is got a darker tan than I have. Uh, natural darker tan than I have. Slightly. And, and, and Chris as well, right? Yeah. So there's not a ton of people with your 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 tan that are that are part of the leadership of the federation. Okay? So it's a, it's a bit homogenous. That's uh, right, right. So there's a lot of white bread here at at the at the AGM. There's a lot of uh, of um, That's an understatement. Understatement, right. Um, and, and so with that, okay, the, the, another area to me where I think the Federation could and should be doing a better job is reaching out and connecting with all populations, you know, all um, ethnicities, all socioeconomic status, you know, uh, a little side story on this. I used to have a, a youth club. We were a non-pay-to-play club. The kids didn't have to pay a cent to play for us. Everything was paid for by sponsors. Our coaches were all volunteers. Uh, I coached. I had a couple other guys that were coaches, uh, South American guys. In a small squad, we were tiny because for us, where instead of you know a pay-to-play club, every kid's an income. For us, every kid was a was an expense. You know, it was the opposite. Right. Right. And so, in that scenario, we had to stay small in the beginning. In 25 players in our squad, we had 10 countries represented, and every continent except Antarctica represented. And our squad of 25 players, that's in South Alabama, right? Right. So being intentional of going out into these communities, building trust, building relationships, earning respect, and all of a sudden these, these families started going, okay, we'll trust you with our kids. These kids were not sanctioned soccer players. They were not playing sanctioned soccer before they came to us. They were playing, you know, in their neighborhoods. Um, they were playing pickup with with you know, other friends or whatever, but, but they were not playing in the U.S. soccer family is a, is a term you'll hear, especially at the AGM. They'll talk about the U.S. soccer family, right, right, of members. So I think that another way that U.S. soccer's got to get better is reaching out, and I don't mean like giving lip service to immigrant populations, other ethnicities, socioeconomic status groups, whatever it may be, but like real, substantive, concrete, like we value you 
kind of relationships in order to change that, not only perception, but change that lack of attendance and, and engagement, you know, with those groups. Chris, what, what are your thoughts? So I think that we can see, if you go to the U.S. soccer website, and I did this a couple weeks ago, so it might have changed in the last two weeks, but the, uh, the diversity task force for the United States Soccer Federation, you go to the website, you look it up, and uh, I'll tell you exactly how many names are included on the diversity task force. Let me guess. It's less than one. It is less than one and tied with zero. And tied with zero. Okay. So for everybody listening out there, that's not a good number. That's not a good number for a diversity task force. So, you know, last year at the AGM, I was struck by this same thing. And last year, there were over 500 people in the, uh, in the room voting last year. Right. And I looked around the room, and I counted less than 10 people who showed as African-American, you know, which is not, a, it's not representative of the population of the United States. And, uh, and I tweeted about it, and I actually uh, wrote a blog post about it. And at the time, I was the uh, racial justice coordinator for the YWCA in Charleston. And um, so I wrote something about it for work even, you know. And uh, the thing is, is it's a concept of being purposely inclusive, okay? And being, not being, you know, not excluding people is the minimum standard, okay? That's the minimum standard. Well, we don't, like, we don't tell anybody that they can't do it. Well, obviously you don't do that. I mean, nobody's here is doing that. I, I don't think that any organization here is excluding people. But what they're not doing is being purposely inclusive. They're not looking around their board meetings and their AGMs and their meetings and their clubs and their clubs aren't looking at who's participating and going, well, you know what? You know, my community is 25% African-American, but only 4% of the players in our clubs are African-American. Why is that? And if you give the answer of, well, you know, black kids just don't like to play soccer, that's bullshit. Because I run a club. That's a terrible answer. I run a club, and it's 60% African-American kids. Right. So that's a bullshit answer. I live in West Virginia that's 4% black people. And my club is 60% African-American kids because the neighborhood that my club is in is around 60% African-American kids. Like, I looked around at our registrations. That point is so good. I just want to stop you right there. That point is so good. That that is something I have talked to clubs about over and over again, that your club should be representative of the community in which it exists, right? So every community is going to be a little different, right? So there will be some communities where you have a large majority, uh, you know, white population. You have some communities that are large majority Hispanic population, large majority African-American population, whatever it is, it should be reflective. It doesn't have to be exact, right? Right. But there should be some representative, you know, like, so if your community is 60% and you had 10 African-American players in your club, you're not doing something right. Right, exactly. And and then so at a point, you have to realize that it's your fault. Right. Like you have to look at Always. what you're doing 
and go. That's so good. So the thing is, is like if you try something and it doesn't work, and but you're trying, you can go, okay, I'm trying. But eventually you have to deliver results. Like, and that's the thing, like trying isn't enough. And saying, hey, we don't exclude people, that's trying. No, that's not really trying, you know. And as an organization, like, and if I can look around and I can say, there's no black people here. I mean, there's not none. I mean, I'm obviously setting at a table with two right now, but right. like, but you're, but you're married to I'm one. I'm married to one, right? And then, and Mickey's not a voter. And Mickey's not a voter, right? But you know, there's not a lot here, and and realistically, there isn't a giant Hispanic representation here no. either. I mean, it's it, there's more than there is African American representation. But it's not high either, especially when you consider the demographics of who plays the sport in this country. Right. Should be a lot higher. And then, and that's the trickle-down effect of everybody here is that way. And then when you go to your state associations, I mean, I can't, you know, speak on everybody because I haven't seen everybody's board. But I'm just going to assume that since it isn't matriculating its way to here, that most of those, it's not there either. Right. So... So what has to happen is is we, as U.S. soccer and all of its members, we actually at the West Virginia Soccer Board talked about this the other day, several members of us, that we have some openings at the, at our, we have our AGM in March, and we have to find more candidates. We don't have enough women, and we don't have enough minorities. We only have one African American on our entire board, and that's not enough. So we're going to we are actively trying to find more candidates that are going to be willing to run. Now they have to win the elections for the open spots, but sure. we but like if we're not actively trying to find qualified candidates to run for these positions, I mean, think about it. The the US soccer VP election election quote unquote, quote unquote election coronation, coronation let's call it what it is. If you're happening have, tomorrow, if you have one candidate, there's one candidate, then it's a coronation. Mickey, Mickey, what you got? So, yeah, I agree pretty much with everything Chris, Chris had to say. But just to, you know, to add a little more, I think a lot of this just has to do with just not putting in the effort um, at all um, on the federation level or on the local level or on the MLS team level. There's no, you know, no black coaches in MLS um, at the moment. And, you know, just examples like that. Patrick Vieira was, I think, the only one, and he's gone. Um, and so... What what are they doing at kind of a you know a higher level to get those player you know types of people involved, qualified candidates? Again, you have right. to be you have to deliver the results. Um, you know, no one's no one's going to carry you along as a passenger. But what are you doing to get those you know those people involved and at least get them interviewed? And you know, maybe one or three of them blows away the uh, you know the selection committee at a particular team. And gets the job, and then you know, at a, at the local level, what are you doing to get, you know, the kids involved in your area? Uh, you know, I, I think MLS has a bit of a blind spot there, which I think is getting slightly better, at least in some ways, but still not nearly enough. Um, and that's definitely a story that should probably be told or you know, written about as far as getting you know more minority representation, um, you know, at the team level. Absolutely, and it's just. Again, some of these things are as a result of MLS not being 
held to the scrutiny of other leagues. You know, obviously there's the Rooney rule in, in the uh, NFL. NFL and yep. baseball has something uh, similar, I similar, think. they do. And, you know, it's just because, you know, no one was paying attention really to MLS uh, before the turn of the decade, essentially. And they could, you could argue that no one's still paying yeah, attention. That, yeah, that is Comparatively. A, yeah, that is certainly an argument that could still be made. But right. it's certainly, there's more scrutiny now than there was 10 years ago, for sure. Sure. Um, and so some of those issues just haven't been confronted um, for the, t- you know, at this time or, or in the past. And so we'll see what happens going forward. Um, but I think, like I said, a lot of it is just the effort has just not been there. Um, and whether I, I'm not going to ascribe uh, malevolence to that or any, you know, necessarily, you know, racial, you know, intentional racial, uh, you, know, uh, m- you, know, re- you know, meanings or, or intentions behind that. I think it's probably just more negligence <laughs> at this point. Right. Um, and so, you know, we'll see, you know, that's probably up to the media to put a little more pressure on that, frankly, um, myself included, right. uh, to, you know, ask, ask some more questions and, you know, you know, you know, you know, ruffle the, uh, feathers and, you know, startle the, uh, you know, uh, rustle the grass, I should say, for lack of a better word. Well, um, well if you're, if you're yeah. looking at communities, if you're looking at fans, if you're looking at, you know, some of these minority groups that are, they're not represented very mm-hmm. well, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the Federation or, you know, looking at U.S. national team matches, you know, which is kind of where we started this rabbit trail. Um, so it's it's not even just minority groups. I mean, we have to remember that it's that uh, it's groups such as rural players and participation as well. Right. So I mean, like the 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 focus is on a very narrow band of players and fans. Right. So like back to what we were talking, you know, Mickey talked about earlier, you know, the the cost to go to the games are so high that we've excluded large chunks of of participants in the live viewing of the games. The cost of playing soccer, you know, at you know, through whatever pathway you think is correct is so high that we've excluded based on income and not just, hey, poor people don't get to do it, but also, I mean, there are people that make plenty of money money that just go, this isn't worth it. Right. Like, you know, so it's not just people who can't afford it, it's people that won't pay it. And people that go, I'm not going to pay $400 to take my family of four to a friendly versus Panama's C-team. Right. You know, like, so... It's, it's a lot of these decisions about exclusion aren't just based on race and ethnicity or gender. They're based on class. I mean, it's we've selected a very narrow band where we're trying to wrangle out every dollar across the full spectrum of the game from youth soccer through the national team, through governance and through everything, that it's, uh, it's limiting, uh, you know, how many amazing people would want to be involved with the federation, with your state association, with the sport, with play, and with coaching, with everything. Yeah. Just yeah, just briefly, uh, and that kind of goes back to what we were talking about is where the federation was coming from, you know, 10 to 15 years ago when they didn't have a dollar to their name and were having to pay and to get their broadcast on TV. And I think it's just they, I think it's in their DNA that they do not want to go back to that. And so their goal is to 
raise and earn as much money as is possible. And that, you know, unfortunately for, you know, the rural minority or for just your standard middle-class person making $45,000 a year um, and with, with a kid who wants to play soccer um, or, or go watch a game, it's uh, the Federation has just decided that the price point for getting into those games um, is, you know, it results in it being higher than most people are are able or willing, right, to pay. So, you know, kind of wrapping up this kind of point here, people, whether it's, whether it's prospective fans, whether it's prospective leaders, members, players, coaches, they really want two things from you if you're an organization, right? First is they want to feel valued, and the second is they want to feel inspired. If you can, if you can have that the public feel like you value them, and you can give them a vision or a dream that inspires them, then you can you can change. You can turn the lights on in a lot of places for a lot of people. You know, I heard today. Um, uh, one of the statistics was the average um, uh, or median income for the average player in the DA, which is the, the U.S. Soccer Development Academy, if, if anyone's unfamiliar with this. It's, it's uh, what is considered the top level of youth soccer in America. That doesn't mean quality on the field is the top. It just means U.S. soccer is deemed that this is the top level. And in that level that the median income per family on average is somewhere around 60 something thousand dollars a year like 66 or whatever there are a lot of people that you are leaving on the outside looking in when you're talking about some of those price points especially if a kid is not on a scholarship or he's not at a you know fully um, uh, paid you know, academy, right? Subsidized academy. So there are a lot of things, whether it's, whether it's how we are trying to engage fans, whether we are engaging future leaders, how we are engaging families and players and coaches where, where I see that the Federation as a whole has just got a lot of work to do to really change and improve and capture this enormous potential that is American soccer. Because I think, and I've said this before, I'll say it here on the round table, at the bar of the U.S. Soccer AGM, uh, with, with, with all sincerity, that I believe that U.S. soccer, American soccer at large, we could be the greatest soccer country on earth if we want to. Like, if that is our goal, that is our vision, and we collectively come together and say, this is our mission, we're going to do it, I think we can do it. But we, we don't have that mentality in this federation right now. I don't see it. Do you, do you guys disagree? No, or? I, I, at this point, again, I think their overriding mission is is fundraising, which sounds cynical. Uh, but 
I I'm, think look, I'm not I against fundraising. Yeah. We need money. Yeah. What are you going to do with the money? Well, again, that's the other thing. How do you make? How They're do you not, fulfill your mission, which is yeah. make soccer the preeminent sport in America? Yeah. So what are you doing with a hundred fifty million, ten million, yeah. fifty million? That's right. A great question, and they have not done a whole lot with it At, to this point. They've thrown out a few grants here and there. They raised, you know, they raised the purse of the U.S. Open Cup by like, you know, fifty thousand dollars, which is. You know, not that they, not that you know MLS teams who are, are typically going to be the beneficiaries of that. Not that they should be you know making you know millions of dollars, but you know it just goes to show that they you know don't value those types of tournaments that, which can potentially grow the game. And so, uh, not to be overly cynical, but at this point, I have I haven't seen any, any indication that their mission, quote unquote, um, has changed or will change going forward. Unfortunately. So yeah, there, there's a, there's a saying, Chris, but um, before you jump in here, that where you spend your money shows what you value, and how right. much you spend, right? In those in they're those not, categories, they're not spending anything at the moment. So then that shows you, you know, what they don't value. They don't value some of these things that we've been talking about because they're not backing that with money. Well, I, look, what Mickey just said right there. You know the mission of the organization. The United States Soccer Federation does not have a long-term strategic plan. How does an organization tasked with soccer in an entire nation, the size of this nation, the size of this organization, with $150 million in the bank and millions of youth players and hundreds of thousands of adult players and however many pro teams we have in the United States now and however many hundreds and hundreds of amateur teams and national leagues and all this, and we don't have a strategic plan. That is absurd. It, I mean, it is, I've never worked for an organization that didn't have a strategic plan. What are we trying to do? We don't know. Right. Like, we don't know. We don't know our mission. We don't know how we're going to get there. And if you hit the target, you don't know that you've hit it because have, you haven't actually set the target in the first place. We, we don't have metrics. We don't have measurables. We can't tell if we're making progress, if we're regressing. Our metrics currently that we're able to use are registrations and the bank balance. Like, those are our two metrics. And unfortunately, registrations are down for youth, right. and registrations are down precipitously for adult players. The bank balance is up. So if you listen to certain segments of people within the organization, everything is doing great. We sat in a budget meeting today, and you know, I didn't hear any kind of answers about how we were going to invest and fix some of these other problems. I mean, you all were you all said in the Q and A with me, right? Did you all hear answers to how we were going to invest that money to 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 further this non-existent mission that we have? Yeah, I just you know I think the the answer there, at least uh, if I were to give uh, you a soccer uh, you know a chance to respond. Uh, is basically that that 150 million dollars isn't going to go very far, which is probably true to some degree, at least on a macro level, because sure. you know, you know, divide 150 million dollars by 
you know, how much could you give to each state? It's not a whole lot of money, and that gets right. wiped away pretty quickly, and then they've got other expenses. So um, I certainly understand that they're not just going to say, all right, everyone step up who's got a... Oops. Sorry. Little technical difficulties. Yeah. Uh, Mickey had to get his headphones back in so he yeah. can hear us. So, uh, you know, again, U.S. soccer doesn't, you know, that $150 million on a macro level isn't going to go very far. Sure. Um, you know, it's not like they could go out and, you know, hand every state $5 million uh, every year because that's, you know, that's going to last. Two, that's not going to last yeah, a year. I, I don't think anybody's is, expecting yeah, sure, U.S. Sure. Soccer to write five million dollar checks to every yeah. state association. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't think anyone's yeah, sure, asking sure. For just that. just as a general proposition, sure. that, that money does, is not going to go as far as I think people thought when they first heard that number. They were like, "Oh my God, the U.S. Uh, the Federation's got 150 million dollars in pay to play." Yeah, it, yes, I, I heard yes, some candidates yes, yes, last that, year. Yeah, 100%, 100%, you know, we, yeah. we're running the campaign right yeah, last yeah. year, and. I heard one of the candidates talking about $150 million. We're going to eliminate pay-to-play. I was like, you have no, you have no clue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kevin Payne, the CEO of U.S. Club Soccer, is on record as saying that youth soccer in America is a $5 billion, yeah. that's a B, guys, $5 billion <laughs> a year industry. Yeah. $150 million is not going to wipe that that's, out. That's not going to scratch the surface. So, not at all. Uh, so, yeah. So, that you know, that, that's kind of where I was coming from with uh, what, what I was saying. And that's, you know, again, uh, that's a legitimate argument. That's a legitimate thing to say. You cannot just start spreading around all the money because it's going to go quickly. But that doesn't mean you, you shouldn't invest at all. Right. And it doesn't appear that really U.S. soccer has really invested any of that money um, at all in any meaningful way. They've come up with some grants that they've uh, talked about. Like you know, three million dollars here, a million dollars there, which is great, but again, that's not going to have any you know measurable impact. Uh, again, on the macro level, it'll certainly help those who are recipients of the grants, and they should certainly be doing more of that. But it's just, I I understand at least to this degree why you know they're not just throwing money out there because, again, if you know all the money's gone and they go into a down cycle like we're currently in now. Uh, on the heels of not making the World Cup, then they're kind of in a world of hurt, and then they've got to kind of start over from scratch. But again, at, you know, 150 million dollars would do a lot of good for a lot of people, and they certainly uh, could stand to loosen the purse strings a little bit. And um, you know, hopefully they will. You know, going forward. Although I unfortunately wouldn't cross. You know, wouldn't get my hopes up too much because sure. I think it's just it's against what their mission is, which is to grow the business side of the game. And I think they talked about that at the last uh, election. Uh, you know, they talked about the business side and then, you know, kind of, the, you know, the grassroots growing side. And, the, you know, you know, their focus was on growing the business, the bank balance. Um, again, to what end is up in the air at this point because they haven't defined what they're going to do with that money uh, beyond a grant here or there and, you know, hiring a couple of GMs. So. Right. Well, and, and, and one of the things when, it, when we talk about, like, money and, and finances and what U.S. soccer has achieved on the financial levels in terms of their focus and their, their efforts, I look at, at, at U.S. soccer as a federation in that level where a lot of people within the federation, voters, delegates, members, think that you know, we've, we, we, we have done 
a successful job on the financial piece. You know, the $150 million surplus. They have. They for have. a lot of people have said that, right? I actually argue that that is still an F. So, in other words, you know, if you, if you think about a classic, you know, educational grading scale, you know, for most it's like, you know, 90 and above is an A, 80 to 89 is a B kind of thing, so on and so forth. So for a long time, the Federation wasn't doing a great job financially. Like, we've talked about that on this episode, and we've talked about, you know, how the Federation has, has struggled financially in the past, how they're doing a lot better than they were. I give them that. Yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not bashing them for some level of growth. That's good. But comparative to what we could be, what we should be, what our potential is, when you look at the fact that, that Europe, which is essentially the size of America, economic power, you know, geography, pretty comparative, you know, uh, Europe and, and America. European countries, the TV rights deals alone are over $14 billion per year. Our combined U.S. national team with Major League Soccer broadcasting rights are $90 million. $90 million dollars, yeah. Our surplus for, them, for the country, $150 million. So when I, when I look at the grading scale, I go, man, it's, is it better than what it was? Absolutely. Is that a step in the right direction? Absolutely. Do we need to keep finding, you know, like a Volkswagen partnership and keep growing the fun? Absolutely. But where we could be, where we should be, these unmet expectations or unrealized opportunities, I just, I don't see that we are aggressively handling those things very well in, in, in the financial piece, even com, even setting aside the soccer side, just the, the, the commercial, the financial, you know, I, I just think that we should be talking about a deal for the U.S. national team and, and a deal for Major League Soccer that dwarfs $90 million a year, hands down. I, 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 I totally agree with that. And um, I think that that comes back to the fact that we have no metrics to measure and to say, hey, we accomplished our goals over this three, five, ten-year period, and we never have. Like, uh, it, it's and, and, and the, that trickles down from the top level. Like, if U.S. soccer doesn't have metrics to measure growth by, like, yes, we have more money. Did we reach our goal? We don't know. We didn't have a goal. You know, so, and that, that trickles down. So, the state association, how good of a job did you do? Well, kids played soccer. You know, we, you know, adults played soccer. So, by golly, we did awesome. Well, what were your goals? What were your metrics? What, how did you measure? How were your, your comparables? I mean, like, like, how does that work? Well, we actually didn't set any of those, and, and U.S. soccer didn't give us any guidelines, and they didn't set any national standards, and they didn't do, like, we don't, there, there's no, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a lack of leadership. 
It's right. not a it's not a lack of people in charge. It's a lack of leadership. And nobody has taken the reins of American soccer at the highest levels and said, hey, we should have a, a billion dollars in the bank in five years. And this is how we're going to get there. We're going to be big and bold, and we're going to say this, and we're going to accomplish this. And you know what? We might not get there. But unless somebody says, hey, this is where we're going to end up. This is how we're going to get there. This is our vision. This is our plan. This is how you fit in. And Alabama, this is how you fit in. And, you know, MLS, this is how you fit in. And everybody, this is how we all fit in. NWSL, this is how you fit in. And this is what we need from you so that we can all get there. We're never going to get there because we have nowhere to get, you know. And, and, and just like you were saying, making some money was maybe great. Maybe we are reaching our potential. But we didn't set a goal to say what our, what our goal was. Right. You know. Was $150 million success or were we shooting for 500 You know, were we shooting for a billion? You don't know if you don't know what your target is. You 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 don't have a way to judge success. So when I mention Europe, and I mention you know 14 billion plus per year in TV broadcasts alone for the um, soccer economy in in Europe, and we look at America, you know, I go okay, 150 million is good. But it's pennies on the dollar yeah. of what we could be. You know, if, if we set our goal to say, we're going to do a billion dollars, how do we get there? All of a sudden, you sit down and, and you start thinking differently. You don't go, how do I go from, you know, 500,000 members here in this organization to 550? You're going, how do I go from 500,000 members to one and a half million? You know, how do I go from a couple million registered players to double that, five million or six million or eight million registered? How do I go from 10, 15,000 at a U.S. men's national team match to 60,000? And how do, how do I go from a, a television contract that is cut up and split up between the Federation and Major League Soccer for $90 million a year, and how do we have these, these two, what should be separate, you know, uh, uh, pieces or properties when you're looking at media rights in the, the national team rights and the um, ma- Major League Soccer broadcasting rights, but even if they were bundled together again, right? How do we take that from 90 million a year to 400 million a year, 500 million a year, 600 million? Like it's a to great think question. Uh, differently, yeah. right? You have to when you know when you are operating on big, hairy, audacious goals, right? BHAGs. If you've ever done any leadership reading or studying, this is something that that's often talked about: is these big, hairy, audacious goals. When you have those, it makes you think different, right? If you're if you're if you're if you're President Kennedy, and you're in the early '60s, and you get up in front of the country and say, "We're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade," 
Now, no one's ever been on the moon before, but we're going to do it. Everything changed. Everything changed. We didn't go, hey, we want to get out to space, and maybe one day we'll, we'll get out there. Maybe one day we'll do. It was like, here's the BHAG. We're going to be the first country on this planet to leave this planet, go into outer space, and put a man on the moon. And, oh, by the way, 50 years from now, 60 years from now, there's going to be a phone that fits in your back pocket who is more powerful than the computer in the ship that's going to put the man on the moon. But that we did it. And, and you see that in business. You see that in, in organizations time and time again. When you have big goals, when you, when you ask and you stretch and you pull and you inspire, all of a sudden you can accomplish amazing things compared to just getting by. Yeah, just, yeah. The question obviously is when you're trying to figure out how to generate the kind of revenue that he, uh, you know, you see in Europe, uh, you know, a lot of that has to do with television where, you know, MLS just simply lags behind. You know, some of that is just the cultural right. issues that, you know, are inherent to the United States. You know, soccer did not originate here. And it's not the number one sport, and it was never the number one sport or close. Right. And so, you know, some of that is beyond the control of you know the U.S. Soccer Federation or MLS. Um, you know, some of it is not. Some of it is you know things they could probably be doing to improve the product, um, just from a you know an interest standpoint. Um, you know, what changes could they make to the structure of the league? Um, and so that kind of goes into what. What bold move will they make coming into the next television deal to try to figure out how to bolster that 90 million contract that you talked about and maybe, you know, you know, multiply it times four or five. Right. Um, and I don't know how they're going to do that. Obviously, if I knew the answer, I'd be uh, working as an executive for uh, MLS or the Federation or some. And uh you know, it, I, I'm not sure what the answer is on that. We talked about answers to other issues earlier. Um, you know, there's just nothing, nothing necessarily that one can point to and say that's a surefire winner. Um, and so, you know, it's just one of those things. They're going to have to make a bold move at some point. But I, I, you know, to be honest, I don't know what that is. Well, I, you know, I, I know a lot of people, you know, poo-pooed it, but, you know, Ricardo Silva offered $4 billion. For promotion and relegation. And the media, and, and I know a lot of people said that it was posturing and, well, you know, it, 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 whatever, whatever it was, you know, the fact that the Federation, this, now this, this kind of, the fact that the Federation didn't legitimately discuss the fact that people are offering... I mean, look, the difference between $90 million and $4 billion, I mean, obviously it was over X amount of period of time, and it right. was, you know... It, it wasn't what, $4 billion it, 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 it wasn't $4 billion in a year, but it was, you know, it, like, it was the 
comparison, I think, was... It was a 10-year, so I think it was about it was 400, $400 million right. a and year. And I think it was $360 million for four years, you know, versus... Yeah, it was scaled out. Yeah, versus $400 million a year for 10 years. Or, right. you know, it was a, it was scaling up over the, the course of the time. Like, the fact that the uh, there wasn't even a discussion about, like, hey... Do we need to just let the window of negotiation? Because, you know, uh, Soccer United Marketing has a, a guaranteed right to negotiate first for X amount of period of time. Just to, uh, I'll let you finish. Just to, just to, you know, uh, the, the, the basic uh, deal for uh, Soccer United Marketing is uh, as the contract comes up in 2022, they've got at least a year uh, where they have an exclusive negotiating window, or I should say, ESPN and Fox and Univision have the exclusive negotiating window for that year leading up to the expiration of the deal, where they can come to an agreement with, uh, you know, Soccer United Marketing slash US Soccer slash MLS. So just uh, just so people know, right? And, and you know, and so the thing is, is there's a lot of different actors involved right there. But the thing is, is you know, um, the the valuable property. You know, currently is are the men's and women's national team, and I think, and everybody knows that, and it's it's not a, you know, to downplay anything else. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation, and the fact that there was another actor willing to enter into the bidding process that was offering substantially more, and um, it wasn't taken seriously enough to say, hey, we're willing to risk, you know, waiting through this negotiating period to open it up to see, hey, what is this really, really worth on the open market? You know, even if Silva's $4 billion ended up only being $2 billion, like, that's still a 100 and whatever, 15% increase over the the current deal. And that's a very substantial, like, we talked about $150 million in the bank, what if instead of the guarantee for the men's and national team's media rights, which is $30 million currently from looking at the financials, bumped up to $60 million? Like, right. how fast does 150 turn into 300 if we double our income every year? Like, and, and, you know, that sort of works back to what we talked about, about you, the big audacious goals and everything. And it works back to not having a plan, not having metrics, and... Oh well, you know this is good enough, right? You know, is is right. good enough? Good enough? No, no, not if you not if you want to do two things, right? So, to me, the the, the U.S. soccer stated goal is good, but not great, which is to make soccer the preeminent sport in America. I think that's that's a good goal. Yeah. I don't think it's a bad goal. Yeah. I think it's a good goal. I think a great goal is to be the greatest soccer country on earth. Because to me, that's Kennedy getting up and saying, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And when you have that as a goal, it's not, hey, we want to be the preeminent sport in America. It's, holy crap, we got to be better than Brazil. We got to be better than Spain. We got to be better than Germany. We got to be better than France. We got to be better than England. We got to be better than Italy. Like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? How can we do it better? Right? You start to, you there's an internalization of drive and competitiveness 
that I think is inherent in the American spirit that we don't tap into because it's not encoded into the DNA and the expectations and the goals and dreams of the Federation. So, you know, the, the interesting thing is I've never really thought about that statement before. Like, really, to make soccer the preeminent sport in this country puts the competition against the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball. The competition for U.S. soccer shouldn't be the NFL. The competition is the rest of the world. Like, and, and I'd never really thought about just how changing, you know, that phrase changes the goal so much because the preeminent sport in America equals business metrics, money, you know, TV ratings, whatever. Like, I'm not, is that really what the Federation's goal is supposed to be? When we do things that are practical, tangible, things to grow the game we get a lot closer to achieving our goals right not just more money in the bank but what do we do with the money that comes in how do we reinvest that how do we partner how do we resource and how do we help players coaches administrators get um to a a a a better um opportunity to not only experience the game, but enjoy the game. And when we do that, in the long run, we're going to be in a much, much better place. You guys agree? Yeah, I think that's a good place to uh, to summarize it, wrap it up. Well, thanks for coming on the show, guys. Thanks for listening to SoccerWorks with Daniel Workman. This has been a roundtable series live at the bar of the U.S. Soccer AGM. I would like to thank Chris Kessel and Mickey Turner for joining us on parts one and two of this conversation. To learn more about SoccerWorks, you can visit wrk.mn forward slash SoccerWorks. Until next time.